Hi, I'm Rifka, health coach and your guide to a more balanced and healthy lifestyle. And I'm Ida, mental health awareness advocate and ADD coach. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We are mumtrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber, where we were both inspired by each other's life experiences. We decided then and there to create this platform because we believe in the power of connection and growth through sharing our experiences. Here we share research-backed tools, tips, and shortcuts. And interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and everyday heroes who inspire us to create positive change in mind, body, and soul. From the inside out. She's a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, professional chef with her culinary school's most coveted award, and a trained nutritionist specialist. With her passions for food and medicine, she has found her niche in nutritional psychiatry. In her newly released book, This Is Your Brain on Food, Dr. Naidu reveals the hidden connections among food, our mood, the brain, and the role of our diet in understanding depression, anxiety, and day-to-day mood changes. When it comes to food and cooking and eating to improve mental health, Dr. Naidu offers some real food for thought, pun intended. Ida and I are super excited to share this episode with you, especially being a health coach and Ida being a mental health awareness advocate and ADHD coach. It's this whole combination of what I do and what Ida does in mind and body and of course the soul as well. Before we share this insightful episode with you, we're going to share a short and sweet review with you. Ida, do you want to read it? Sure. So here's the review. It comes from Hoovy, and she says, this is the one podcast I've listened to every episode of. Highly recommend Boost of Positive Energy. I love, love that. Short, short and sweet. And you're going to get a total boost of positive energy in this episode right That's now. That's right. Literally. <laughs> if you listen and you take note and you do the things that Dr. Uma and I do recommends. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hey there. Hello. I'm excited to talk to you both. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and share your insights and your work with our listeners. And um, yeah, Rifka, did you want to just welcome? Thank you so much. It's interesting as a health coach, most of my clients come for guidance in healthy living with the main goal being weight loss. And then they discover along the way that through changing their eating habits, their mood is uplifted and they're amazed at how what they eat makes such a difference in their mood and energy. And that's why your book caught my eye because it's so much about how our food affects our moods. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So as a Harvard psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutritional expert, you have introduced a new approach in the way we understand the relationship between what we eat and how we feel. Can you talk about the gut-brain connection in relation to mental health? issues for us and our listeners. Absolutely. Firstly, thank you so much for hosting me. I love being here and I love sharing this message. And thank you both for the work that you're doing with your community. I would thank love to share, um, share my impression of the gut-brain axis because I do think that many people don't make this connection. And when we go to see doctors, we are having conversations about our physical health. We're talking about a family history of diabetes. We're talking about a family history of cholesterol. Um, But no one is talking about our brain, the most important organ, certainly uh, in my opinion, in our body, because without our brain, nothing else functions. So I feel that that is the gap. And one way to understand that gap and the importance is through knowing that the gut and brain are connected. And they are connected because in the embryo, uh, the gut and the brain form from the very same cells in the body. And as they grow and develop, our bodies form. And then throughout life, our gut and brain are connected by the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve. And this not only connects it physically and anatomically, but physiologically and biochemically. So I like to think of the vagus nerve as a two-way superhighway that is constantly communicating chemical messages between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut. And, And that being said, many people know about serotonin, the happiness hormone, 
And serotonin is, you know, the is part of Prozac or it's part of how the, the mechanism of action for Prozac works. But not many people realize that more than 90% of the serotonin receptors are actually in the gut. So, you know, right there are these connections between food, between mood, between the gut and the brain. And I think that in these days and times, what I would also love for your listeners to know is that a very large part of our immune system is in the gut too. So that also becomes important in terms of how we eat for better immunity. And it's all really tied together. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about the term uh, gut feeling, which very much kind of relates the two, the two, the brain and the stomach. And there are so many references to the brain-gut connection, but we just, I guess, haven't consciously absorbed it. Um, exactly. What I find so fascinating about what you just said is, yes, there's such a strong link, yet the field of psychiatry, and then you have the field of, of mental health, even though there's a lot of overlap, they're very much each in their own domain. What, what I love about your work is that you're able to, to merge the two together and bring in a, a third factor, which is nutrition. Being a psychiatrist, you know, it's such a demanding and time-consuming a career and field to be in that um, oftentimes it's hard to find that um, the time to enter into another passion that you're that you want to pursue. And you manage to do that: psychiatry, nutrition. You know, kind of two separate fields, but you've kind of bridged them and brought them together. And I'd love for our listeners to know because there are so many listeners who you know, have multiple passions, but they, we kind of hear conventional wisdom telling us, you know, pursue one and take on mm -hmm. one path. And that's how you can really reach success. So can you talk about your experience sure. um, pursuing two passions, bringing them together, mm -hmm. how that was for you and anything you learned from that experience? Absolutely. I'd be happy to, you know, I would, um, I would love to say that I had some sort of grand plan in my life. Um, I, I knew that always knew from being a little kid that I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't really have great or lofty ideas beyond that. Although to be honest, when I was really little, I wanted to be an astronaut and that, that somehow didn't come to be, but I was surrounded by a very large family. <laughs> <laughs> very large family of thank you of, of physicians and but also not only were we very medically driven and surrounded by a combination of allopathic medicine and traditional medical doctors as well as a few ayurvedic practitioners so i grew up in that type of environment but i also grew up in a large family that had a lot of love and nurturance and food and nutrition was very much part of that so i carried those things almost I would say in my DNA. And um, I feel as though what I, the way that my career evolved was following things that I loved to do. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do medicine and I knew that I loved speaking to people and helping, but that my best way to help them was through through my voice, through, through the way that I could relate to them, but also then knowing the science behind it. When nutrition came into this in a very prominent way, as I was learning about psychiatric medications, and I began to understand the seriousness of the side effects. So while many medications, including non-psychiatric medications, have side effects, I felt there was a certain burden on a physician, or at least a responsibility to, to not beyond just sharing the risks and benefits of a medication, to also provide people with more tools as to what to do with it. Because when you write, it's a very powerful thing to be able to write a prescription. And I, I recognized that very early on in my life and my career. And I also felt that they, this had to go hand in hand with more information. So my holistic background and how I was raised really brought in the element of, well, how are you going to eat? What is your lifestyle going to be? Do you practice mindfulness? Um, you know, mindfulness doesn't have to be a meditation. It doesn't have to be a spiritual um, something, just, just to coin that term loosely. It, it, it has to have meaning to you, something that brings you peace. And for very many different people, it could mean different things. It could be a religious um, phrase or a reading. It could be just a mindfulness um, moment where you are able to calm yourself down or feel more centered in yourself. It could mean many things, but I brought this to my discussions with patients pretty early on. And really how that evolved was to be very integrated and holistic, but also a functional method in psychiatry. So I would always look for the root cause. I would always want people to have more solutions. So I went on to really study this because there's a real gap in nutrition education for doctors. 
And I will say that my trip to culinary school was, that was pure passion. That was, you know, following Julia Child and her trajectory and her career and watching her on public television because I couldn't afford cable and she was there cooking. And it, it helped me in my journey for cooking because I learned to cook later on in life as well. And Beautiful. when I heard you know, when I heard that she went later on and had the second prayer, I thought, oh, why not me? You know, and I, I did that really because I wanted to learn more and I loved it so much. Um, but I was very, very fortunate, feel very blessed that these three different areas, studying nutrition, you know, training as a psychiatrist, and then this journey and this detour to culinary school came together in the work that I was doing. I feel very fortunate in that way. Um, but, you know, I think the message for me, if anything I would share, is that follow follow what you love to do. And somehow when you love to do it, you find a way to balance that out. And, and think out of the box, because if I had to follow very direct advice that people had given me when I first started, I probably would have only done one third of those things. Um, Literally, I, I probably wouldn't have pursued the residency that I did. I probably wouldn't have applied to to Harvard. I, I probably wouldn't have done a lot of things. And um, I think that you you almost have to be guided by an internal sense of what you love and what you want to do. And and when people say no, it's not that you shouldn't respect their opinion. It's just that you can enter into a dialogue of what you want as well. Right. Or right. take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> exactly. Take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. That's your yeah. opinion. I respect right. it, but I'm may, you know, I may have some other thoughts or I may want to pursue something or ask more questions. What you're, what you're saying is to trust your gut. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Trust your gut, you know, and, and you will feel those butterflies in your stomach when people say, no, you shouldn't do that. You can't do that. You know, that's too many hours in a day, but you know, somehow you do it. And, um, it, and, and I can't, I, I have to say it wasn't easy. But because I loved what I was doing along the way, I found the time I would, you know, for culinary school, I would be studying at, at family dinners, I would have my books with me, and I would be practicing and doing all sorts of crazy things. And uh, people, you know, my family would laugh at me, but they, they also embraced the fact that I really wanted to do this. And I think having people who love and support you is important. Um, I think, I think, I think we, we are blessed to have that. And, and if you, if, if you rely on that and let, let your friends and family know when you need help, that's important too. I love that. And also, don't you find when you're doing something that you're passionate about, you build energy reserves that you may have not known you know, you had. I love that you said that because in my head I was thinking, I still don't know how I got through those many hours of culinary school, <laughs> balanced uh, my practice. You know, I had a coverage system with my colleagues, but they were, I was still working the rest of the time. And now when I think back, I actually don't know how, how I did it. So you're absolutely right about that. You, when you love it, you immersed in it and you find a way. Yeah, absolutely. My ears perked up a little bit when you've mentioned that you had family members who practiced the Ayurvedic method. And mm -hmm. it's something that I learned about when I studied health coaching and I really appreciated the whole personality um, concept and the doshas. I was just wondering, is that something that you include in your practice? Because I'm actually taking a course on that right now. So at this, and thank you for asking that. You know, I um, I know of it more from a um, from being a member of a family and and speaking to to um, to two of my uncles who did this in terms of their practice. I incorporated um, really Rivka from the sense of knowing that these principles exist. And if say someone comes in and says, well, I've done these Ayurvedic practices, I know how to understand it. But as a practitioner, I, I consider it part of my holistic model. So if someone is embracing Ayurvedic work and pursuing that, I can incorporate it. But in terms of right. my holistic model of care, it's more really based on not forgetting simple things like sleep, hydration, meditation, movement, right. and about 15 other things. But the, the picture being that it, it's still based on, for example, I still prescribe medications when needed. Someone might still need medications, but I right. focus in on the nutritional strategies. And then maybe there are Ayurvedic recipes or principles that they bring in from that practitioner that we right. can incorporate. I, you know, I, I just I, never, I'm diagnostic in my approach and I never say no to, to someone who's coming in for their mental well-being because whatever they're eating or doing or practicing becomes really important to to incorporate. Yeah. I love that approach of, of incorporating the idea if someone wants to incorporate it Absolutely. or elements of it. This is something in your book that really touched me. 
you witnessed the power of your work firsthand when you discovered a lump in your breast. Because this month, being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we thought we'd talk about this with you. Sure. But, you know, prevention is on our minds. Can you talk about guided you through this difficult time? Absolutely. I think that um, the first week, which I wrote about, uh, interestingly, I decided at the end of the book that I did want to share this. So that is why I wrote it into the introduction. I had to be at a place where it felt like the right thing to do. And the reason being is that I tend to be quite a private person. Much of this experience challenged me and challenged me on an emotional level, because I was very shocked. I was feeling healthy and this came out of nowhere. Not only did things happen so fast because I was blessed by having excellent medical care and access to excellent medical care. It's happened so fast that my my mind hadn't caught up with my body, so to speak. So I was going through all of these tests within rapid fire of a week, everything, everything diagnostic. And I was physically going through it, but my mind was elsewhere. It was, it was kind of processing the information. And, you know, no one wakes up one day and thinks, well, today I might have cancer. And I knew instantan- instantaneously when I found this completely because of the position and the location purely by, by chance, um, I knew instantaneously um, in a gut feeling kind of way, you know, I knew this was cancer. And I also instantaneously felt for whatever reason, and I do, you know, do believe in a higher power and, and my spiritual center said to me, I'm going to be okay, but whatever it is, I have to go through it and then became this journey. So what ended up happening was the first day of my treatment came so fast, actual, actual treatment with, with very strong chemotherapy drugs that I, I was standing, you know, getting ready for my treatment that morning and pretty anxious. And I found myself um, surprised at my level of anxiety because I'm not generally someone who worries in that way. I mean, I worry about everyday things like any of us do, but not to that extent. And it was a very powerful moment for me because I had to collect myself, collect my thoughts, knowing all of the side effects of what I was going to face was even more scary. So I was making myself a cup of my turmeric tea and And that moment, I realized very importantly that I could control how I ate and what I was doing, because even though I couldn't control the prescriptions I was about to endure, the medications, the IVs, the everything, um, you know, the whole gamut of treatment, that the one thing I could do was eat differently or, or up my game in terms of how I was eating. I think any one of us can on any given day. And I decided to to embrace that. And that became a very powerful way for me to feel I had some autonomy in my life at that point where I was being treated and had no control over that. Um, and I felt that nutrition fulfilled a very big role in um, in how I conduct myself over that time. So much so that my doctors would ask me every week, so we want to know what you brought is your snacks, but want to know what you're eating um, because you're enjoying these side effects so well. And, and I think that that really brought this home for me. And I decided to write it into the book because it was so powerful in my own, my own life that I wanted to share that. Yeah. And it's amazing how having been trained in the medical profession that you recognized right away what it was and that you were able to implement your background in nutrition into your life. And you, and I, and I know that you mentioned at what point in the book that it helped with the nausea that you, um, that people experiencing chemotherapy, you had mm-hmm. less of that because of some of the smoothies and, and the foods that you introduced into your, into your diet. There's another element, the faith, the faith aspect. Yes. And Absolutely. so what role did faith play in, mm-hmm. um, in your ability to, yeah, to get through? Th- thank you for asking that. It, it played a very central role. Uh, I come from a, a spiritual family. I was raised learning how to meditate, uh, learning to practice mindfulness just as part of my upbringing. Um, I'm, you know, of, of Indian descent. And, and that was just what I saw in my family and how, I, how we did it. So there was a way in which, you know, the first week of that diagnosis was very emotional because a lot of my family is overseas. And I think that what I remembered and what really brought it home was how my mom and my late grandmother would always say, you know, even if it was a difficult moment, they would focus on the positive and they would help you to that place of, even if they were in tears and they were upset, and of course everyone was, they would lead you to that place of 
This is where you can find your strength. And this is, you know, what you must remember to do. Do your meditation, do your spiritual practice. And sometimes any one of us becomes less um, less regular or, or you know, um, it, it forgets because something more important comes up in a day. And, and that experience really brought it home for me, how those tenets of how I was raised really belonged in my everyday life again. You know, anything that had slipped off came right back to the spiritual practice, the meditation meditation, um, you know, gratitude, affirmations, those, those simple things that we often talk about. But when you actually put them into practice, um, and, and that experience taught me to bring them back more regularly, I was doing them, but I wasn't doing them regularly. That and, and faith in the fact that I would endure what I did and believe that you would come out on the other side and that it would ultimately be okay was very, very important. And it came from how I was raised, what my, my parents would tell me, my, my late grandmother would tell me, um, she's one of the people to whom the book is dedicated and, and she really raised me, helped raise me that way. So it was a very big pillar. And, and it's a pillar that when someone comes into my office and they have a spiritual center and they, they believe, have a belief system, I really tap into that because it's, again, looking that holistic and integrated way, it's another thing that really centers someone. But if they come right. in and they, they're not that way, then that does, isn't, doesn't become an important pillar of the treatment plan. It's still there, um, but maybe they embrace something else and not that kind of spiritual center. That's beautiful. And isn't it amazing how somehow when we go through our darkest times, that's when we desire to connect and turn to our roots and the faith that we were brought up with and the essence of who we are. And you did that. And I'm just wondering if you feel that the same way the gut and the brain are connected, that our soul is intertwined and connected with the brain and gut too in mind, body, and soul. Absolutely. We feel that way in, our, in being Jewish women. It's so interesting, and, and I'll share this because, so I, yes, I absolutely believe that, and I was raised that way too, so I think we have a, a commonality there. Yeah. But, you know, I um, well, someone was asking me recently, what about, um, you know, this is such a new field. Do people even know about it? Is it, is it real? And, and I, you know, I'm always respectful when people ask me questions, even if it, uh, seems a little strange. And I said, absolutely. I, you know, I think I, I am up for the fact that people may not always accept this connection. They, they may question it, but I was taken back to a time when I was still studying and in training and uh, what is now a very big and large center at Mass General was the, which is the Benson Henry Institute for mind body medicine started off with, um, Dr. Benson and Dr. Herbert Benson. And, you know, back in the day, and it's not that it was so long ago, you know, he would talk mindfulness, he would talk about all of these forms of care. And it had, it took time for it to gain traction because there were there was people who truly believed it and there probably were many others who didn't. So, you know, it speaks to that point that uh, when you when you come into the world that way, as, as I can see that both of you are as well, it's just part of how you are. And it's much easier to then accept and embrace those things. So thank you for asking that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, whether or not a person, um, you know, has a faith-based life or practice, I think that there are certain uh, lessons that can be extracted from a faith-based uh, point of view about letting go of the things that I can control and taking care of the things that I can, because ultimately we are limited in what we can do, but we should try to do the things that is within our capacity and in, in kind of promoting a healthier and uh, happier life. I find that, you know, there's so much overlap in, in our, in the Indian and Jewish, in Indian and Jewish cultures yes, um, when it comes to faith and yeah. yeah, mindfulness and food. Um, <laughs> I love Indian cuisine. And so moving on to, to foods. So right now we're kind of dealing with a lot of stress and chaos in the world. And I wonder, are there just specific foods, foods mm -hmm. that you can point to and say, well, this is kind of a great place to start. Absolutely. You know, I, I appreciate the question because I, I feel that launching this book during a pandemic was initially a very big challenge and, and it continues to be a challenge in terms of being, you know, being exposed to wonderful audiences and people like yourselves that are interested in this work. Thank you. But, but, it, but it also became, from feedback that we got, it also became 
that people are using it as a guide to fortify their mental health. You don't have to have a diagnosis, so to speak. You don't have to be seeing a doctor. It's more that if you're not feeling great, this is a tool. It is a toolkit with different foods that you can use. And each chapter goes into specific foods. And there's- Yeah, for our listeners, I just want to um, say the book is called This Is Your Brain on Food. Here, I'm holding it right in front of me, even though our listeners can't awesome. see it. But I highly recommend it. I plan to implement it in my practice with my clients, Wonderful. I very much value every chapter. And we'll Thank include you. a link in our, in our podcast notes for, for awesome. Thank well. you. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, so, so there are those specific foods in each chapter, but there are also these pillars that I talk to people about because very often I'm asked, you know, what can I do today? And there are things that people can actually start with food to do today because they will start to say, help prepare your gut, help build up some healthy habits that will ultimately really affect your mental well-being. And some of them include things like eat whole be whole. And what that essentially means is eat whole foods when you can, um, you know, because because eating them is going to lead to a much healthier mental um, um, sort of mental well-being state. So another way of saying that is eat the orange, skip the store-bought orange juice because store-bought orange juice has no fiber and has a ton of added sugar. But actually eating the whole food like an orange is one way to get all of the nutrients, vitamins, fiber, everything, poly, you know, polyphenols in that fruit that are good for you. Another principle that I talk about is, you know, it's a principle of happy gut, happy mood. And what, what, what helps that? What helps your gut tape be taken care of? It's it's a few few pretty simple steps. One of them is embracing foods that are rich in fiber. Um, it turns out that as Americans, we worry about protein, but we are actually deficient in the fiber that we eat. We act, as a nation, we generally um, uh, are getting enough protein in our diet, but we are sadly lacking in fiber. Fiber is very easily obtained. You can't get it from animal and seafood protein, but you can get it from vegetables, fruit, beans, nuts, lentils, legumes, seeds, and healthy whole grains. If you don't eat any one of those, just eat more of the others. But it's a easy way that you can start today to change up what you're eating and include more fiber-rich foods. Why? Because those foods feed the good microbes in the gut. And when the good microbes thrive, they're taking care of your mental well-being. And they are fighting off things like inflammation in the gut and other diseases. So one way to do it is simply embrace, you know, those veg- add more vegetables to your diet, have healthy servings of fruit, such as berries, which are low glycemic. So that's another important principle. The third is um, really eating the color of the rainbow. So colorful foods um, and fruit have an important meaning because they're polyphenols and antioxidants in these different colors. And I challenge people to eat as many different colors as they can in a meal or in a day or in a week because the biodiversity of those different the, the different polyphenols and antioxidants really help your brain health. So that's another easy thing that you can do. Um, you know, if you and and this includes you know leafy greens. Leafy greens is one of those colors. So having those types of salads um, and or fruits, vegetables is is super important. And the colors really really make a difference. And the fourth one is really in eating prebiotic and, and fermented foods. So prebiotic foods are very simply um, again foods that bring back um, good fiber to the gut and uh, it can be easily found in things like the allium family so garlic onions leeks you know can and and a few many others but it can be those easy foods people tend to know about probiotics but they don't know much about prebiotics and probiotics can be a supplement or they can be fermented foods so dairy and non-dairy yogurts now these days have added cultures to them they were they were eating. And um, I just say go for the unfruited or unsugared kind because those are just healthier for you. Add your own berries, add cinnamon for sweetening and add in fermented foods. Can be kefir, miso, kimchi, kombucha, any one of those um, uh, can be added to your diet. Pickles, sauerkraut, tempeh, um, all, all are fermented and really bring back some healthy bacteria to the gut. So, so those those sort of four pillars are ways that you can you can start today just to start to change things up for your better mental health. 
That's great. Thank you for sharing that. What do you believe the role vitamins supplements play in healthy sure. diet? Like, for example, I actually have yogurt in the morning and I also take a pre and probiotic. Is it enough just to have the yogurt? Right. So that's a great question. And, and I, I think well, this is what becomes a little bit challenging because our guts are mostly unique to us, right? I, I recently um, was evaluating someone who came in to see me for nutritional psychiatry. She happened to bring her teenage daughter with her. And it turns out, even though they're biologically related, mother and daughter had a completely opposite reaction to a healthy food that they both ate. And what it really taught me and reinforced for me is how mostly unique our gut microbiome is. So that being said, it could be different for different people. In terms of supplements and vitamins, I would like to say that we don't need them, but many of us just aren't eating a complete diet, not, not because we're not trying. We may not just be able to do it just yet. I think we're all on a path to improving how we eat. So many people take a multivitamin and that's fine. But technically, if we were eating the right kind of diet, we shouldn't need these. Um, in terms of other supplements, in the Northeast, you know, Many people are deficient in vitamin D, so it's not a it's, it's a totally okay to have supplement to add. Probiotics are perfectly fine. I always say with any one of these, just make sure your doctor knows, because I always use the example of grapefruit. Grapefruit, super healthy fruit, but in certain medications, it can be quite different. I read that in your chapter on bipolar. Um, exactly. It can be significant side effects. effects. Exactly. So yeah. that's just by way of example. I'm not just saying glibly, oh, talk to your doctor. I'm saying that right. he or she would know what medications you're on, what responses you might have. So that's the reason to be careful. And in terms of supplements in general, so so I while I think that it would be great for people to be able to get probiotics from food sources, um, first and foremost, like a yogurt, if you can't, it's, it's fun to have a supplement. As long as it's agreeing with you and you're tolerating, absolutely great. Where, where I, would, I would add to that is if, you're got, you know, if you're not feeling uncomfortable when you eat these, adding in things like fermented foods are a good idea. You know, think a, a lovely Buddha bowl or vegetable bowl um, and add your protein in of your choice that you want. It could be, you know, it could be a seafood. It could be um, whatever, whatever you choose. But you know, um, a little, a little, some kimchi pickle, or a little bit of sauerkraut, or something for a little bit of a, a, a slightly different taste and flavor is a great way to just add in a fermented, uh, fermented soup or, or miso soup. You know that that type of thing. But don't you think we're better off first implementing the food and then absolutely? The some people think I'll just take the vitamins and then I'm I'll glad you said that. But... I'm glad you said that because I think that that we're our, sort of a vitamin. Uh, popping nation you know we we yes. think that we can we can and we spend a lot of money in supplements as a nation and absolutely i think that if people understood that just by being a little bit more careful about what we eat when we eat and 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 the actual quality of what we eat um we can make a huge difference to our health all i'm saying is those supplements are okay some 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 of them right. are fine remember that to talk to your doctor and that they're not all fda regulated so be aware of that, but don't feel that if you just take five or eight pills a day, that it's going to solve everything. You're absolutely yeah, right. right about that. There's nothing that can replace healthy whole foods. Yeah. There's um, no magic pill. <laughs> there's, exactly. Yeah. There isn't yeah. a magic pill. Yeah. yeah. But what about frequency and frequency and quantities? Is there a thing about eating, you know, every two hours or is that a myth? So there, there are lots of sort of different um, dietary plans and studies that are being done, you know, on fasting, intermittent fasting, fasting mimicking diets. And um, there was some good data that's come out on these. I, I personally feel that my plans are really made for the individual. So they are personalized to the individual. And here's why. Firstly, our guts are mostly unique. Secondly, a person may have a belief system or foods that they eat, foods that they don't eat, allergies, intolerances, sensitivities that have to be crafted. Thirdly, I feel like these plans work when I can tap into with someone, what are you willing to do? If I say to someone, eat your first meal at this time or that time, and they don't want to do it, it's very hard to implement something that you don't, you don't want to be doing. It's also very hard to say to someone, stop eating this entire food group and that entire food group. So I try to have a more moderate approach that has most foods involved, unless someone has specific medical conditions, a, a regular diet of sort of three meals a day, some snacks in between. Part of it is based on their hunger level. Part of it is I would 
even if you have, say, two or three snacks during the day, I want them to be healthy snacks. You know, I don't want them to be the potato chips and candy bars. But if we can replace that with healthy, simple, easy recipes, well and good. I, I want people to feel satiated when they eat. I want them to eat mindfully, not be on the go, running, standing like I was when I was a psychiatry resident. Uh, so uh, I know, you know, not doing that and paying attention when they're eating. So I would say that any any of those plans are okay unless someone comes in and says, well, I'm trying out this diet. Then my next question is, have you made sure you've spoken to your primary care doctor and he or she is okay? Because you have to be careful if you have diabetes. You can't just fast indefinitely because in diabetes, low blood sugar is much more um, much more dangerous than high blood sugar. And so, you know, there are specific conditions where we have to be careful. So the general answer to that question is eat the way that you enjoy eating. I'm much more concerned, even more than calories, about the quality of what you're eating. Um, You're, you know, paying attention to portion size and the quality of the foods. Um, And if you have three snacks in the day, make sure they're healthy snacks. If you eat two meals in the day, make sure that they're well-balanced meals. Um, and, and, and try to craft it that way. Yeah, that's great. I very much concur with your words. Uh, you had mentioned that you said um, you don't, you often, like if someone doesn't feel like having breakfast, it's so hard for them to change their ways. There's certain things that they do have to change, like incorporating right. wholesome foods, et cetera. Do you have any tips on how you get them to make a big change in their lives? Sure. So, you know, and I actually didn't mean that they shouldn't have breakfast. What, what I more mostly meant, for example, let me give you an example in ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's studies have shown that they really sh- individuals really shouldn't skip breakfast. And some of the medications that we use, use uh, and prescribe in ADHD suppress appetite. So the fact that a study has shown it's really important and helps focus and attention in those individuals to eat breakfast becomes really important. I was more meaning that, you know, sometimes someone comes in and they're like, well, I don't eat avocado, you know, and I won't eat avocado. It's very hard to then say, here's my recipe to use avocado you know it's almost like I have to work around that Um, but some general guidelines that I give people is back to eat healthy whole foods what are the foods you're willing to do and what is one healthy habit change one or two that that Mm -hmm. you're willing to do right now when you leave my office today you know of course now it's a virtual office but you know what are you willing (laughs) to do what are you willing to do today that will make a difference because when someone has identified Rivka you know that say they've eaten, started to eat potato chips over the pandemic. If they have identified, usually people are aware of something they're doing, which is kind of something they shouldn't be doing. You know, they usually know if you ask them and they're like, well, I really, I really want to change that. Well, can I teach them a recipe that they can make, you know, spinach and kale chips in the oven, 20 minutes, you know, their own spices that they enjoy, great flavor, have that great crunch instead of eating the pretzel or the the potato chips. Can we do that to start changing the habits? So sometimes it's finding what someone's willing to do, locking in that that idea, changing that habit and saying, here, this is what you can do today. Are you, do you think you're up for that? And I think the moment, exactly, the moment that someone starts to feel different and feel a little better is when, when I really see habit changes starting to stick. Yes. You're saying if you start small, keep your word, and one step leads to another. Exactly. Build it up. Something big. Exactly. Build it up slowly and have patience. You know, sometimes yes. it's maybe, maybe a person can do three, three of those things in a week, but really it's, and I've had people do that, but a lot of people, it, it's one thing that they, you know, it's one thing that they feel they can commit to. And if they can be patient that it's not a quick fix, it's not a magic bullet, it's not going to be fixed overnight, especially if they have gut dysbiosis and disruption of the gut, you know, it, it does take time to help to heal that. And I loved what you said about uh, if someone loves potato chips, making kale chips with salt and some spices. I wanted to know, actually, in regards to sugar and moods, Mm -hmm. I'm big into healthy swaps uh, chew and with lower Mm -hmm. glycemic sugars like maple syrup and honey, um, coconut sugar, etc. And I was wondering what your view is on sugar and moods, because you say to eliminate sugar um, if you are for healthy swaps and using sugar supplements. Right, absolutely. So, you know, the the data around sugar is pretty compelling. Um, Added sugars worsen mood, um, they drive anxiety, and um, we know that the added sugars are just not good for for our brain. Um, We we know about the other health 
problems, but we know that they're not good for our brain. That's why I focus in on it. I think it's very hard to say to someone, you know, you can't eat something sweet. Yeah. So I would much rather they just move from knowing where those added and hidden sugars are that they, people don't realize ketchup has a ton of sugar. Don't realize that pasta sauces that are store-bought may have a ton of added sugar. Salad dressings do. Um, fast food potato chips, uh, fast food french fries do. Um, people just don't realize it. So so it's firstly knowing where those sugars are. Secondly, what what are you willing to do? The other problem I have is that many, many artificial sweeteners drive symptoms of, of uh, both depression and anxiety and others. So one has to be careful there as well. Um, two things that I um, two things that I think are, are, are plausible if you're trying to move in a healthier direction, you know, embrace dark chocolate. Uh, great, great healthy food, the darker, the better. Um, and I'm talking about raw, raw, dark, natural chocolate, as well as cacao for baking, um, using, you know, using low glycemic or other fruit, and then eating it within with safe portion control. So because, right. like I have a recipe for the banana ice cream in my, um, in my book, when you make it, even if you make the, the ch- uh, chocolate flavor with the dark natural cacao, which is good for you, it doesn't mean you eat the whole top. You still have right. a portion of it and you balance right. it up, right? So that becomes important too. And I yes. would much rather people start to use, um, you know, say some berries to sweeten something um, than, you know, because all of the other forms of sugar of which I think there are about 200 names, other names for sugar now on food labels. Uh-huh. Um, and even if it's a natural form, they still break down as sugar, right? So so right. it's it's not, it still is sugar. So yeah. one has to make a decision about how stringent you're going to be with yourself. I don't have a hard and fast rule about it. Again, I try to work with someone for myself. I really feel that the best thing for myself is to cut is, is to cut back slowly on that as much as I can and find right. um, healthier replacements for it because, you know, I know the effects. Um, and I think that becomes hard for people because it's, it's tough to say, you know, it, it's um, don't eat this cake or don't eat this decision. It, yeah, yeah, it doesn't end up being sustainable. And that is why it's not I sustainable. Stru- yeah, yeah. That is, that's why I like to incorporate lower glycemic options and I love the cacao as well and sweetening things with fruits and also with lower glycemic sugars but yes like you say in moderation yeah I wanted to hear your view on that it's it's good to hear yeah and so um so what I what I will do with people is offer ideas or recipes to using um a swerve uh for baking or using tiny you know small amounts of stevia if need be um and that way they can still have a baked good but be using um you know using a couple of the sweeteners that I think are a little bit, um, you know, so far what we know and the research has shown is they have a better impact in relation to insulin. So um, those are some of the can suggestions you, I make. Can you share one of your favorite recipes with us? Oh, of course. Um, so one, and it, I, I think, I think, I, th- I want to say Mind Body Green published it, but I have a recipe that I love for um, chocolate mousse. Chocolate mousse is a big favorite in my family. And we found a way to use um, an extra ripe banana. So, you know, that the, when it's, it's sweeter as it gets dark in color and um, avocado and dark, super dark natural cacao powder and really whip it up um, and make a chocolate mousse. So it's as simple as that. Wow. And I like to top it with, um, it, it, it really is super delicious. I like to top it. The sweetness really comes with the banana. The creaminess comes from the avocado. Um, you're getting the benefit. All of those have a great brain uh, brain benefits and you get, um, you know, you can top it up with uh, cacao nibs, which are nutritious and crunchy. Um, you know, you can, you can make up some coconut cream, you know, another, you know, to top it. So there are a lot of different great ways to make it. And the sweetness really comes from the banana. So. And as a trained chef, I know you stand behind your recipes. <laughs> I, I, I do, I do. And, and then the other thing is that I really care that food is tasty. So I right. don't want to give someone a recipe, uh, give p- people a recipe that they're going to like taste something like. And this happened to me recently. Someone shared, very kindly shared a healthy recipe. And I thought, oh, this looks delicious. And, you know, I went and made it. And um, I tested out my family. And it, even though it baked up fine and, you know, it was just an oven-baked recipe for something, it didn't taste good. And I, I was really saddened because I thought, wow, this, it looks beautiful. And the moment you tasted it, the flavor was missing. And it just reminded me that, you know, when I share something and I give 
people a recipe, it has to be delicious because if it doesn't taste good, you know, you've seen the cooking shows, someone won't have a dish that looks beautiful, but they might win the show because the judges will taste it and be like, oh my God, the flavor, you know, and someone else may have a beautifully composed dish, but may have not, not added enough salt, you know, or, 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 or flavoring or something like that. So it's a similar principle. The flavor really yeah. matters and people are not going to eat it. If you say, sure, eat, the, you know, have this instead. And it doesn't taste good. They're just not going to It has to be, it has to be delicious. <laughs> it has to be I'm delicious. Well, we're going to try your chocolate mousse um, oh, great, recipe. Great. And I uh, can't wait. I'm going to share it. We can't it's, wait. Uh, yes, and send us a picture. We'd love, we'd love to see it. I also share recipes. I hate to waste people's time on making something that doesn't taste delicious. Exactly. So I'm with you. <laughs> exactly. And they're not going to, you know, they're going to, they're not going to enjoy it. And that yeah. means they're not going to follow up on on the coaching tips you give them. You know, so exactly. So okay, can't wait for this chocolate mousse. <laughs> What about, we haven't covered this and I was curious, what's your take on coffee? So coffee is actually, I I don't demonize coffee and I don't demonize it because a lot of the research has shown that, um, that in moderation, depending on time of day, the amount that you're drinking, um, I think personally, and what I found nutritionally, it's often what people add to their coffee that can be a problem. For example, someone with anxiety, if they, you know, putting a ton of artificial sweetener, that may be driving the anxiety. So I, you had I feel, said you had said that you use stevia. Do you think stevia is a good thing to add to your coffee? Yeah. So, so not not if you have anxiety, because studies have shown that stevia drives mm-hmm. anxiety. So in that case, you might want to try a little bit of erythritol. Um, in your coffee. But if you don't have anxiety, you're not struggling with that. Um, you know, for baking and stuff, stevia generally has been found to be okay. It's just in the, ca- the category of anxiety. So coffee is perfectly fine. A lot of studies have shown um, that less than 400 milligrams, 400 milligrams or less is fine, as long as it doesn't drive your anxiety. Um, time of day, either by 12 noon or 2 p.m., have your coffee so it doesn't impact your sleep. And then it's what you add to it. If you're adding kind of nasty ingredients to your coffee, then that doesn't help you. You know, the the coffee itself may not be entirely bad for you. So, um, and the other thing in relation to coffee is I feel people need to pay attention to body intelligence. So if you have it and you're feeling jittery or you're feeling on edge and you you can't concentrate or you're feeling too anxious, then it's obviously impacting you in a certain way and cutting back slowly uh, because you can also have caffeine withdrawal and have a severe headache and other symptoms of anxiety. Um, it can happen too. So if, if, if you feel that way when you drink coffee, then you need to move to a lower dose of it, meaning have less, um, you know, and try, you know, maybe over time cut back on it. Yeah, that's where mindfulness that, really yeah. comes in. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Be mindful of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you, if you don't feel good, then, you know, cut back on it slowly. Yeah. You had actually written in, in your books and benefits of drinking coffee. And Absolutely. Coffee. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that, and that's the reason I don't, uh, I don't demonize it. It means, you know, some people feel you shouldn't drink any coffee at all. I am not one of those people. And it's, it, it's not dissimilar to my, my feelings about diet and dietary advice. It doesn't really matter what I eat, but most, most of the, most, most people do either eat, Eat a um, eat a certain kind of diet. So it's it's sort of trying to find a way with them that they can can embrace healthier habits based on what they eat. And what about when it comes to uh, to medication? Is do you have the same philosophy on you know prescribing medication? So with medication, I am a conservative prescriber, but I prescribe medications and medications have saved the lives of many of my patients. So I do not uh, feel that there's any reason to exclude them. It's really on a case-by-case basis. Some, Some people now that I've really sort of built out this niche in psychiatry may come to me um, based on their symptoms because they would prefer not to take medication. Some come to me because they're on a medication, want to embrace nutritional strategies and see if over time we might be able to taper them off. Um, And in some instances we do, but it has to be done safely, carefully, and with appropriate guidance. So someone who's actively suicidal, someone who is manic from bipolar disorder, who has lost touch with reality um, because they have in the midst of a psychotic episode, um, any of those types of acute acute situations, it's not that you can't use food. It's not, it's, it's just that it's not the first line. You may need to see a doctor, be in an emergency room, even be in the hospital first. And with all of those stages, you can you can also be changing along your diet. So in that way, it's just specific to the situation. 
Yeah. You recommend um, cutting out gluten a few times in your book with mm-hmm. uh, people who have bipolar disorder or ADHD. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I've, I feel that people are often confused about the role of gluten in our diets and often choose to become gluten-free because it's trending at the moment. And they'll buy mm-hmm. potato chips because it says gluten-free on the bag. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. healthy. What do we need to know about gluten as it relates to adopting a healthier lifestyle? So again, you know, it's not that uh, dissimilar to to how I feel about coffee. I think that it's the source of the gluten, it's the quality of the gluten and where it's found. Um, and the fact that, you know, the gluten-free industry is a billion-dollar industry in, in the United States. And why is that? Because the label, people, like you've appropriately said, assume that it's healthier. But in fact, there may be other fillers in there and other types of flour being used that are still refined. They just may not be gluten. You know, they may just not contain wheat. So it doesn't, A, it is not equal a healthier choice. B, it may not be for everybody. If you have celiac disease non or non-celiac uh, gluten sensitivity, or you, you have developed some kind of intolerance, um, then you should be speaking to your doctor and, and coming off it slowly. Or if you have the conditions that studies have shown can um, drive symptoms if you're eating gluten. The, in those conditions for mental well-being, we ask you to cut back because you may in fact show an improvement in your symptoms. I think where people get confused is, is that the quality of um, the way that our wheat is produced in this country is is quite different. And so the refined flours and where we're getting our sources of whole grains are probably not as healthy as they could be. So, you know, I would rather someone um, eat the foods that they enjoy, but really care about what the source of the food is. And you know, there are ways, for example, to have healthy whole grains. It doesn't have to be a loaf of bread from the supermarket. It may not have to be that you have to bake it from scratch because not many people have the time to do that. Um, but you could be in eating other forms of grains that are also good for you and a healthier loaf of bread that is home-baked to bake from a bakery right. that's doing it from scratch with really good ingredients. That, that to me, is what counts a lot more. Um, but if you're, if you're having difficulty, then you should be cutting back. Right. That is that is sometimes why I like to make some baked goods that aren't necessarily from whole grains, but let's say from almond flour or oat flour, because yeah, because of the nutritional value, not because it's gluten free. Exactly. There's a greater nutritional value. Absolutely. Right. And it, it gives a different flavor. It's a, you know, it's it's a, a different baked good. And it's sort of it like I like thinking out of the box when it comes to recipes, because it's not just that it's gluten free, because people have misunderstand they yes. just assume, oh, it's healthy, but it could be laden right. with other things that are not healthy. So, yeah, that's a kind of similar. Um, you mentioned the keto diet in your book that it can be beneficial for, let's say, bipolar mm-hmm. um, disorder. But then people seem to confuse that too. They're like, I want to lose weight. I'm going on the keto diet. What's your view on that? So I think that there are two um, two areas that are gaining a lot of um, a lot more. Uh, tension and uh, certainly some good research that's coming out. One is in in the ketogenic diet and the other is in the intermittent fasting realm, you know, the fasting diet. So some good data coming out about that. But here's the thing in relation to mental illness, we don't have enough of the data for mental well-being yet. So I'm not, I think those diets are perfectly fine if someone's using them, but I don't think people should misunderstand things like you just said, I want to lose weight. Well, then why not I do the keto diet? There's specific uh, th- many of these things have been around for a long time. You know, um, how is the keto diet different from the South, you know, from the active? There's a lot, lots of things that have similarities. I feel that rather than going to an extreme, can we find a healthy way to eat in moderation, um, yeah. not exclude foods? Now, people may not agree with me on that. You know, they may feel like ketogenic is the way to go and and good for you. You know, I respect that. I respect how you want to do it. When my patients come in with that kind of thing, I will work with them around the foods that they will embrace within that right. diet. I just right. don't feel that I know yet for the, the, the very everyday symptoms of mood disorders and anxiety and others, how much evidence we have yet. And when that evidence, and if it comes in, I will absolutely embrace that for my patients and their care. But I don't think right. it's there. It's there yet for mental well-being. A lot of the physical um, evidence, uh, you know, for physical health is coming up. 
in the research. You know, I love how in our conversation, there are so many themes that I think can apply in many other areas of life. You know, that there is no one size fits all formula, even though there are things that we know are helpful. We really have to, to, to know what is unique to us and what works for us. And, and not necessarily if something works for me, will it work for, for someone else? And that's a, it's a, an essential component of, of building well-being. Know thyself and, and be mindful about what works and what doesn't. Absolutely. And, and then, and in, to incorporate change, you know, stacking little, little habits at a time can Absolutely. produce um, big results. And big I think change. that, um, and your work is really inspiring on so many levels that you were able to pursue multiple passions um, and kind of bridge them together and find your own unique path. You knew what worked for you. And clearly it's been having a, a major ripple effect. Um, we've already, I posted the book the other day, I was reading oh, it and, and I, I got more comments from, you know, from any of the, of the other books. Thank I read. So you. clearly it's Appreciate resonating. That. Um, so we normally end with a few questions. So are there any myths that you'd like to dispel that come to mind? I was going to say you can dispel one of them even. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so in relation to the things we spoke about, you know, it's the myths that something is a superfood or, 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 or the way to go and, and the health buzz of the moment, you know, whether it's gluten-free or it's a certain ingredient that's considered a superfood. Just, I would just ask people who are listening to, to you know, vet the evidence through one of the reasons that I that I wrote this book was my patients were coming in and they didn't know what diet to follow, what was a superfood, what what you know, how many blueberries they should eat. It became very confusing, and I think that um, with the information age, the way that it is, people are looking up information. I would just ask them to vet the source of information uh, and make sure that there's some good science behind it, so that you're making a good choice. And that you know, like the last example, gluten free does not equal the perfect diet and that you're going to lose weight or following a ketogenic diet may or may not work for you. You may lose exactly the weight that you want and be fine, but someone else could get into a medical crisis. You know, we just, we just don't know based on who you are and your unique, um, your unique body and microbiome. That's great. Love that you dispelled that myth. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, we, we're on a mission to discover the essence of self-care and uh, um, I want to know what your barometer of self-care is or, or what self-care means to you. Self-care to me um, really comes back to what we spoke about earlier, that balance of mind, body, and soul. Like if I, I feel like if I can in, in a moment or in my day find that balance, that that is really important to me. And what do I mean by that? It could be a combination of making sure there's time for some type of mindfulness or meditation, making sure that I am well-nourished during the day. And also, you know, having a connection to my spiritual center um, and some form of gratitude practice or remembering the beautiful moment in a day because, you know, it's, it's fall and, you know, even the leaves changing is such a beautiful thing and that it's something that that comes from a force that, that, you know, it's nature, but it also comes from something that I'm not controlling. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So just, just, I think for me, it's finding that, that center in a day of, if, and it's a good day when I can line, I can line those up in, in any particular order um, and have those elements in my day. That's wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah. So what would you like to see happen in the future? Uh, one of the things I would love to see happen is that people, that there's less stigma around mental well-being and that if food and nutrition can be one way that people feel that they're not dealing with a prescription pad or medical appointment, but that they can start to impact change through how they're eating and feel emotionally stronger or emotionally fortified obviously not if they're acutely ill then you need a doctor and a hospital and all of that but if, if you're just trying to live a healthier life and you know that you're not feeling well emotionally and it's hard to reach out one thing you can do is change how you're eating because that is one of the many elements we spoke about today that can make a difference and i would like to see that really become more of what we do every day because we care about diabetes we care about our weight we care about how we eat for high cholesterol, but we're not caring about the brain. And that's a really big missing gap. Um, you know, during the CDC sent us sent out some very scary statistics that during COVID, 11% of Americans considered suicide, 11%. Wow. And in the fact that they um, even considered is a very scary thing. So clearly we may be smiling, we may be having a good day today, but we're not 
not everyone uniformly is doing okay. And I think that one way we can start to change that and help ourselves is how we're eating. I appreciate so much that you mentioned destigmatizing uh, mental illness. And, and that's very front and center on, on my mind that, that I am a big advocate of is, mm-hmm. you know, destigmatizing mental illness and talking about mental health yeah. or, you know, uh, talking about um, depression as you would a headache. Yes. And I hope that your words ring true and do make a difference. You are changing the future. Your book yeah. is and what you've shared with us I today so. and what you do with Thank your... You. With your clients. Thank you so much. I We always end with a quote. We wanted favorite to know quote, if you could yeah. share your favorite quote with us. <laughs> I, prob- I will probably butcher this, but, uh, you know, Julia Child's my food hero. And I always like to say, you know, when you talk to me about diet, here's Julia Child, slim, tall, loud voice, uh, charming, very brilliant. Uh, but she also used, you know, had martinis uh, most days of the week. Um, loved butter, you know, embraced butter and why not? You know, she lived a very healthy and happy life. But one of her quotes was, um, the only time for diet food is when you're waiting for the steak to cook. And I I sometimes use it as a slide because what I like about it is that she just had this opinion, right? And I think that we get so stuck on words like diet and weight loss that, and and it's not about the steak or being vegetarian or vegan or anything like that. It's just the the fact that she was funny and she was incredible. If you've used any of her cookbooks, you know that she was incredibly serious so and very detail oriented so she she when she made jokes it was really to lighten the situation and to look at something through a different lens and um i i just it always makes me laugh so i I absolutely love that thank you for enlightening us and for lightening us thank you (laughs) thank you it's a pleasure to speak to you both such great questions and we look forward to incorporating your book into both our practices wonderful thank you so much I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to meet you. You too. Take care. Take care.